Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Makeup. <laughs> Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're going to talk about how funding issues are affecting older Hoosiers. We have three guests in the studio with us today. John Cardwell is here. He's uh, the executive director of United Senior Action, and he's also been involved with the Indiana Home Home Care Task Force. Nick Patrone is here, Deputy Director of Division, the Division of Aging for the Indiana Family and Social Services Administration, and Kerry Conway, the Executive Director of the Area 10 Agency on Aging. Uh, if you want to join the program, please phone us at 855-0811 or toll-free 877-285-9348, and wfiu.org slash noon edition is our web address if you want to join the conversation on, online. So thanks for being here. Great, Thanks for having great us. to have all you, all of you here. Mary Welcome Catherine back, Bob. Back, uh, yeah. We're, we've both been vacation. We haven't been together for a while, but as we were gone, you were all having some interesting uh, news stories, at least about the Choice Program and some things that that have been happening. Um, the uh, I know the the Choice Program, which is Choice, stands for Community and Home Options to Institutional Care for the Elderly and Disabled. Uh, is the choice program. And uh, the state, and I'm going to turn to Nick first, the state has, has sent a letter saying that 70% of the funding is going to be allocated at this time. Some people have, have taken that to mean that they're only going to get 70% of the funding. Uh, but I think that your office is trying to, um, uh, well, you don't necessarily agree with that. Indeed. I guess to to clarify, one of the initial things we had done uh, back in June, I guess it was, we would have sent out notification to our AAA partners, the area agencies on aging throughout the state, and there's 16 of those. And one of the things that uh, they had asked us to do, uh, and and rightfully so, is to get get our contracts out in a more timely way. Because largely what happens is, at least in the past, these would go out in July or August, and they really were beginning dates of July 1. Contracts for what, though? uh, Contracts for basically basically what we were going to be asking them to do what services we'd ask them to provide and what the funding that would be associated with those services. And so, uh, and, and fairly lengthy contract, but our hope was is to get the information out as soon as we could with the information that we had at that moment. And, and at the time, we didn't have, you know, anything, nothing was really set in stone. I guess I should go back. I think it was May, actually, that, it, that this would have transpired. Um, and so that, that the initial dollar amounts that we put in the contracts were lower than, than uh, expected, and a lot of concern was raised about that. Uh, Basically, in response, after we got a firm position as to where we were and kind of knew um, knew a little more about what our year was going to look like and and what uh, what the reserve from the state budget agency was going to be, we were able to come back and say we're going to be able to to match or better the numbers that we had provided for you uh, for the choice program the previous contract year. And so that's what we've done. And actually, it'll be a little larger than the uh, dollar amount that uh, that was la- uh, that we had provided last year. And we're in the process of putting forth the contract amendments now. Mm-hmm. Okay, Carrie, is this? Uh, I, we're, I, I'm, I know that there were a lot of people who were concerned mm-hmm. when you got your first letter. Are, is there all the concern sort of in the past now? Is everything um, okay? Yes, and, and and I need to say that from our agency's perspective, um, our choice amount um, did not go down. Um, it actually went up. Um, so it, it was not a concern for us. Now across the state, I know that that was not the case, and I, I know that a lot of my colleagues. Uh, with the AAAs across the state, we're a little concerned about staffing levels um, because, as you know, if, you, if you've run, which both of you have, you've run a business before, it's a lot easier to shut something down than to ramp something up. And, and I think that there was a concern with some of the larger areas on aging that they would have to, with these numbers, based on these numbers, they were going to have to reduce staffing unless they had a fairly firm commitment on what the dollar amount was. Carrie, could you speak a little more specifically about the kinds of services that 
we're referring to? Certainly. And this is just one piece of our contract. I would like to say, you know, we perform a lot of services, the the AAAs do. Mm -hmm. The CHOICE program basically is a program that allows us to, as case managers, to help those in the community who need help with at least two activities of daily living. And that might be bathing. It might be uh, taking care of a tracheotomy. It might be, um, you know, if if, if they're on um, sort of an artificial feeding system, if they can't get out of bed without assistance, if they can't bathe without assistance. People have to have at least two, have needs in at least two of those areas in order to receive services in the home that keeps them out of long-term care facilities. Okay, and this is just one program that allows us to do that. But it's a very important one because it's an intervention. Mm-hmm. It, it basically allows people to live in a community-based setting or a home-based setting rather than to go to a long-term care facility. Mm-hmm. Which has lots of benefits. A lot of benefits. It, it's, it's, you know, your basic win-win because not only does it keep them out of the long-term care facility, and if you look at the surveys, nobody uh, or the vast majority of people don't want to go to a long-term care facility, 96%. It also is less expensive than a long-term care facility, although that gap in Indiana is not as large as it is in other states because we're kind of at the low end in in how we pay for nursing facilities. Uh, But there's still a gap there. Mm -hmm. So uh, in terms of the budget, it helps us. It also helps folks stay, stay home and stay better connected to the community. Mm-hmm. All right. So, John Cardwell, at the, uh, as Nick has explained, the, you know, the amendments are coming out. Will the funding levels at this point be uh, satisfactory for um, services for people who want to stay in their own homes and for the seniors that you deal with? Well, I, I would have to say the answer to that is no, but it's not Nick's fault. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, and I say that jokingly, but seriously too, because the division of aging uh, is not involved in the budget making process. Uh, the Family and Social Services Administration, which the division is a part of. Uh, did lobby during the General Assembly to use the dollars that were eventually appropriate for the choice program differently. The General Assembly dis- disagreed with that, and the, do- and the traditional funding levels were established. Uh, slightly more of the, uh, of the total dollars available for choice will be earmarked to be used for Medicaid waivers during the, the current biennium, which just started on July 1, the biennium mean two-year budget period. Uh, and we regretted that, but the the major problem in the, in Indiana, uh, and I'm not going to really focus on the issue that happened in May. I think you know that's been debated, embedded, and so on and so forth. But the major problem in Indiana is our aggregate investment in home and community based care versus institutional care. And just this past week, the uh, General Assembly had a hearing of this, uh, the health. Finance Commission, mm-hmm. and one of the interesting things to me was that one of the major lobbyists for the nursing home industry came right out and said, going forward, this state needs to invest in home and community-based care. That is what people want. But he also added, we cannot sustain the current system. And so uh, from the perspective, not only of United Senior Action, but I think it's fair to say probably every senior citizen advocacy group in the state, every disability advocacy group in the state, we are all saying the same thing. We need more money invested in home and community-based care. Uh, as Carrie said, that is what people want, and all the uh, research evidence uh, suggests people do better medically, psychologically, uh, in terms of longevity of when they're in home and community-based settings, and for taxpayers, it saves money. Uh, there is a, de- a debate, and it has not been resolved in for many, many years, but there's a debate about which, is, which service on the home care side is best or which funding stream, and uh, that is the debate about investing money in choice or in Medicaid waivers. Our per- perspective is simply this. We do not have enough money in either program, and, and the debate shouldn't be about taking money from choice or taking money from Medicaid waivers, it needs to be about growing the aggregate public investment in home care because it is far cheaper to use in institutional care. And as I just had just mentioned, as Carrie referred to, the outcomes are better. So for 
for people who need long-term care and their families and for taxpayers, it's, it's really a better deal. And if we can go forward at this point with the Division of Aging, with our legislators, uh, with the governor, with everybody who has a, 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 dog, in, a dog in this show, uh, but especially with the citizens of the state, to actually move ahead and, and change the public investment, uh, change that investment uh, to one based on home and community-based services first, and based on services that people say they really need, not based on services that are imposed on them. And quite frankly, all of us who have faced home care situations, uh, you know, if you go into a person's home, that family or that the individual needing home care will be 90% right in terms of what he or she needs because they're living it every day. And the area agencies on aging, I'm going to throw, throw this back uh-huh. to you, Carrie. Uh-huh. The area agencies on aging have done a remarkable job for a long time in terms of employing case managers who have the skills that are needed to dialogue with people to accurately identify those needs. Mm-hmm. So we, we have the foundation for a good system in this state for home and community-based care. We need to invest in that. And if we do so, taxpayers will get a better deal, and Indiana will be a much more attractive place to live. Oh, could you define what uh, the significance of a Medicare waiver? Medicaid waiver. Medi- actually, sorry, I some, Medicaid, yeah. yeah. And I, I have some numbers on that that I'd like to share that will give you an idea of where we are um, in terms of the United States. Well, let's define mm-hmm. it, and then yeah. you can go from there. If, remember when I talked about choice, and I said basically you had to have two um, – you know, you need to help with two activities of daily living. With the Medicaid waiver, which operates in a very similar way with similar services, you need help with three. Okay. There are also some um, more fiscal guidelines. Um, you, you need to be at a percentage of the federal poverty level in order to qualify. Mm-hmm. And if you don't qualify, you have what's called a spend down. You have to spend down your assets and your income. Um, there are also some fiscal qualifications for choice, and there, you know, without getting into that, I will just say that, you know, you can buy your way into both of these programs. So Medicaid is sort of the last intervention before a nursing home. Choice is the intervention, the first intervention before a nursing home. If you think of it as sort of a cascade of where we go, mm-hmm. you know, choice you need two, Medicaid you need three, plus these income things. Um, so. Looking in terms of where Indiana stands in terms of home and community-based services, because I think drawing that, the conversation back to that, because I think what we all want is we want more efficient use of these dollars, and we want to keep people in their homes and communities as well. Um, Indiana, and this is from agingstats.gov, so this is from the federal government, um, we are, for home care recipients through the Medicaid waiver, we have 2.2 um, elders per thousand elders and that puts us 49th in the country so we we do have a long way to go in terms and of course we all know it's mississippi that's 50th but you know that that's a huge gap so balancing what money you put in choice and what money you put in medicaid is a good question do you want to intervene sooner or later do you want to serve, you know, folks who are the very most needy or folks who are just sort of entering into this? Where do you where do you put your resources? That's the balancing act that is Nick's job. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I still don't quite understand what a Medicare waiver is, though. I mean, a what, Medicaid waiver. Me, I did it again. Medicaid yeah. waiver. Yes, I'm sorry. a Medicaid waiver. Choice keeps people, you know, provides services to keep people out of nursing homes. So does the Medicaid waiver. It's essentially the same set of services. There are a few differences. The same set of services. If you are um, at imminent risk of or would otherwise be in a long-term care facility, mm-hmm. you can receive the services in your home instead if you qualify for a Medicaid waiver. Okay. And Medicaid pays for that if you, Correct. you need and yes. until and you that need is, that fourth bit of help. Well, right. sometimes you go as that's a minimum of three. Sometimes yeah. you've got six or seven, frankly. Okay, and yeah. often you need six or seven. Yeah. And if I could add, and, and the question of the waiver comes up all the time because the, the term itself is confusing the people. It, yes, it's mm-hmm. very. It, that's the thing. It's like that doesn't match. But go ahead. Well, the reason it's called a waiver. 
Uh, Federal Medicaid law originally did not allow the use of Medicaid dollars to be spent for home and community-based services as a a legal entitlement. So under federal law, you're legally entitled if you meet the impairment levels necessary for institutional care. In the early 1980s, Congress uh, changed federal law so states would have the option of providing care in the community funded through a waiver, but states are required in the federal law to uh, to submit an application uh, to the federal government. The application specifies who will be served on a waiver, how many folks. It's essentially a contract. It's usually a three-year deal. Sometimes they're longer. Uh, those waivers are routinely re- renewed, so once a state gets one, if it's administered correctly, it will stay stay in place. The the difference between choice and the waiver, uh, there are some other differences. In Indiana, we had choice prior to having a waiver. Mm-hmm. Indiana was not one of the first states to opt for a waiver. So in 1985, Wisconsin was serving people on a waiver. Indiana uh, ha- was n- not serving people on waivers. We passed choice in 87. We started choice services in 89. We didn't have the aged and disabled waiver services until 91. Uh, the consumer view is a little different, I, I might add. Uh, there are people on the choice program who have more impairments than than two uh, activities of daily living they cannot perform. Yes, that's a minimum. Right. So that's a minimum. And both programs require people to have impairments that put them at risk of losing their independence. Mm -hmm. So it's possible to go into a nursing home with only uh, deficiencies and only two activities a day to live in. But the good news is it's also possible to have deficiencies in many activities of daily living and still prosper in a home care setting. And there are many reasons for that. Medical technology has changed. Uh, ambulatory technology uh, uh, has changed. The availability of durable me- medical equipment that people can handle in their own homes is dramatically different. Uh, in when I first started as an IU student in 19, fall 1968, if a person uh, had an accident and was a quadriplegic, the issue was not whether or not the person was going to stay home or not. The issue is whether or not the person was even going to live. These days, we have across the country tens of thousands, if not millions, of quadriplegics, paraplegics, and we have many of those folks who receive services through choice and Medicaid waivers here in Indiana. And many advocates believe, and I'm one of them, there's virtually no reason you have to be in a nursing home anymore except for some profound uh, uh, behavioral issues or family situations in which there's absolutely no support or very, very poor support in mm-hmm. a family situation. But for the most part, from a, <clears throat> from a medical and technological standpoint, from a service delivery standpoint, most people these days uh, can remain at home. And so the big challenge for the state is to take advantage of those things. And, you know, and that's really, to me, where the debate is going forward. Mm -hmm. And the debate has also picked up another uh, dynamic that didn't used to be there. It's rapidly or already has become a civil rights issue, a human Mm -hmm. rights issue. There have already been court decisions in other states that the failure to provide home and community-based services is, in fact, a violation of a person's civil rights because the ability to provide those services at a cost that is equal to or less than the institutional care is already there uh, in terms of home and community-based care. So we are, in the end, it's behind the curve on doing those things, but the good news is there are lots of good things we can do, and and that's why advocates like myself uh, want to work with the area agencies on aging in the state to take advantage 
of all these opportunities. All right. Our phone numbers today, as always, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our website. You can go there and join the conversation. We're talking about issues affecting uh, seniors in Indiana uh, with John Cardwell, who's with the United Senior Action and also Indiana Home Health Care Task Force. Uh, Nick Patrone, Deputy Director, Division of Aging for the Indiana Family and Social Services Administration. And Kerry Conway, Executive Director of the Area 10 Agency on Aging. I have a whole bunch of follow-up questions to this. Uh, so let, let me get to a couple of fairly simple ones. You talk a lot about um, home and community-based care. I mean, I clearly understand what home care is. How would you define community-based care? So you've got a couple different options there, particularly from a Medicaid waiver standpoint uh, for whether it be an assisted living or an adult foster care or uh, adult day services that, that could be provided to to a consumer. And, and so those are the things that are, that are most generally used, at least uh, through the Division of Aging, uh, to provide services that aren't specifically in the home. Okay. Uh, you've talked about how outcomes are better in these kind of situations. Can you sort of explain that a little bit to me? Well, I'd be happy to What chat kind of outcomes? Huh? Well, it, this is a good show to talk about those uh, about outcomes because there have been studies, three studies done by Indiana University, uh, in 1989, 91, and 1998, and the 98 study was nice because it included the Medicaid waiver population as well. And what they found in those studies uh, were very high levels of uh, uh, c- consumer satisfaction with home care services through choice, and then in the 98 study with both choice and with the Medicaid waivers. But what they also found in the study uh, those early studies found that there were people receiving services through the CHOICE program, and this is before we had the waiver option, uh, who previously would have been an institution. And the, the researchers concluded that 75% of the people in the CHOICE program would have been in an institution without those services. But they also concluded that the people getting the services were remarkably optimistic about their futures. And when they interviewed people with like conditions and in institutions, what they, were, what they found, and this has been replicated in s- studies across the country, people were very pessimistic about their futures. Uh, as, you know, as a person with an academic background in psychology, I, I, this is very striking to me because one of the big challenges in terms of mental health is keeping a person independent in terms of what's going on in the, in the person's uh, psychological or, uh, realm, and home care is, a, is one heck of a great tool for doing that. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have a phone call, and it's Valerie from Owen County. Valerie? Um, yeah, hi. I think this is great that you're covering uh, this topic of needs for seniors. I'm sort of recently arrived at seniorhood. And uh, I'm not to the point yet where I need in-home in care in terms of, you know, eating and dressing and all that, but I suppose eventually. Um, I, I guess I'm having a little bit of a problem uh, finding out what these different, like, I've never heard of United Senior Action before, and I guess I'd like to, you know, in a nutshell, if you could just run down what these various agencies do, because I'm having a little trouble finding where to go for what kind of help. And, for example, I had heard years ago there was some kind of program where you could, you know, get help with, you know, minor repairs to your home and then I called the Area 10 Agency on Aging and they didn't know what I was talking about and I didn't know if that was through CAP or you know I'm just is there any kind of like website or or maybe we need to start one where people in my position who aren't ready to go into a nursing home but may need assistance with other things like you know home repair or I don't know some I'm even thinking about starting some kind of volunteer network for people in my position who need help with things that don't seem to be available like um oh even things like you know housework mm-hmm. that you're not ready to you know be bedridden but you're really having I live alone I'm single and you know you're kind of having trouble keeping it together I'm not what I used to be is what I'm trying to say here so, no you're you're better yeah. <laughs> in uh, some ways. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just sort of frustrated in trying to figure out 
where to go for what kind of help and if those kinds of help is available. And, um, you know, now that I'm here as a senior citizen all of a sudden, and not a teenager anymore, it seemed like a big leap there, uh, I'm not quite sure what's available to me and where to go to get different kinds of services. So this is kind of a general question, and I can get off the air and listen if you'd like. Okay, thank you thank very you. much, Valerie. Carrie, um, yes, uh, let me let me just say right off. There are two answers to this. One is you can we we are the Aging and Disability Resource Center for Monroe and Owen counties. So you can indeed call the area ten offices. We do indeed have um, a a program that helps seniors. It's called the Repairs Program, where we have a group of very dedicated volunteers, most of whom are re- retired construction workers, who do home modifications uh, for seniors in the area. They're very active, uh, and they are actively looking for clients right now. So I encourage you to call the office and talk to Holly if you have needs in that area. The other thing that you or anyone can do in this area, because some of these needs might be related to your age, some of the needs might be related to your income level, some of the needs might be related to where you live. Uh, Area 10 also um, is that we are the the 211 service for Monroe and Owen counties. So any question you have about you know, meeting any kind of a, a human service need, you can call our 211 operators that rings right in our office 24-7. Um, and, you know, if it is a CAP program, we can give you the proper referral to that CAP program as well. And more importantly, if you're interested in volunteering yourself, we have through our Retired and Senior Volunteers Program, and that includes a group of almost 500 volunteers over the age of 50 in Monroe and Owen County, we have a Caring Companions Program that allows you to contribute to the community by helping seniors who are either on a waiting list for a program or maybe don't meet the minimum requirements of a program with things like light housekeeping, shopping, maybe a little transportation, friendly visitor, reading aloud. Um, we, we very carefully match you with those folks. We call it eHarmony for seniors. <laughs> and, um, and to make certain that that it's a good match, and, and there's a lot of opportunities uh, for you to help out there if you're interested in doing that. All right. The uh, United Senior Action. Uh, United Senior Action is a, uh, a statewide senior citizen membership and advocacy organization that's been around since 1979. Uh, it's the Indiana's only general membership senior group that is uh, uh, – native to the state, so to speak. Uh, there are currently, that I'm aware of, there are three statewide senior groups. The others, two are AARP and then the Indiana Alliance for Retired Americans. Those are both uh, part uh, affiliates of national uh, organizations, but United Senior Action is only found in Indiana. And the, the uh, Valerie, our, what our organization does, uh, we do advocacy at the at the uh, state capitol, but also around the state on behalf of senior citizens and increasingly on behalf of uh, persons uh, with disabilities. Uh, And we also provide literature for people trying to make uh, decisions in terms of their long-term care options. Uh, And if it's okay to give our phone number, it's uh, area code 317-634-0872, and uh, we'd be happy to talk uh, to you. The literature I'm talking about is is uh, free, mm-hmm. and in United Senior Action, uh, as you probably surmise, uh, commonly works with area agencies on aging, and I, I would really, really encourage you to follow up on uh, Carrie's suggestions, and I would also encourage you that if you do not get the answers you're seeking, don't give up after you've asked the first time. It's really, really important to be persistent in terms of trying to get the care that you need or anyone else needs. And it never, there's no harm in asking once, twice, or three or more times for that assistance. All right. We're going to have to take a short break because we've been uh, talking about some very interesting stuff here in the first half of the program. We're talking about issues facing uh, older Hoosiers, and we'll be back after the break to talk about that some more. You're listening to Noon Edition.
This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcast directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we have three guests with us in the studio. John Cardwell, who's the executive director of United Senior Action and also has been very involved with the Indiana Home Health Care Task Force. Nick Patrone is here, deputy director of the Division of Aging for the Indiana Family and Social Services Administration. And Carrie Conway is joining us. She is the executive director of the Area 10 Agency on Aging. If you want to join us, please phone 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon or to wfiu.org slash noon edition. Well, we were talking at the break about um, some of the terms that we use, and we all often talk about you know seniors keeping their independence. And mm-hmm. Carrie had something very interesting. Yeah, she made say. such a great comment during the break. I wanted you to please repeat it because well, it's so important. It's, it's something that um, I'm a relatively new in my position. I've been here for a year and a half, but I've worked in aging programs before. And one of the words that I, I truly dislike when it comes to talking about these programs is the word independent. Um, I don't think that seniors need to be independent. I think that seniors need to be interdependent. And a lot of the issues that seniors are facing have to do with the fact that the one thing they have in common, they've all experienced loss. And Mm -hmm. often that loss is embodied if they lose a friend, if they lose the minister of the church they've been attending. They lose that connection to the community. And often by the time they come to us, they have lost all their connections. And so they're coming to what is essentially a stranger for help. And part of our job in terms of case management is helping to rebuild those connections and that interdependence with community, because that is such an important indicator for a state of well-being. And um, so, no, we are not striving for seniors to be independent. We are striving for seniors to be interdependent, to connect them and to allow them to contribute back to the community. And and that was another point that you made that I thought was so interesting about the folks who have received services then Mm -hmm. in turn... um, Often turn around and give back. Absolutely. And I don't know the exact percentage, but I would say it's over 50% of the seniors that we have that are receiving services from us are also giving services. Um, I talked about our Retired and Senior Volunteer Program, where we have almost 500 uh, folks over the age of 50 who are volunteering for nonprofits and for individuals in Monroe and Owen County. And um, we have 14 of those folks are over 90, and four of them are over 100. And they all have a contribution <laughs> to make. They do. And they, they do it willingly with a good heart. Um, I'm just thinking we uh, recently experienced a loss at our agency. We lost one of our volunteer receptionists. Um, and I won't say his name necessarily, but he was 92. And uh, he was actually in a nursing home uh, six or seven years ago. And uh, through a connection that he was able to reestablish, actually managed to come out of the nursing home, receive home and uh, community-based services. And up until two months ago, three months ago, he was volunteering for us as a receptionist. He was volunteering for Friends of the Library. And he was also volunteering at the Habitat Restore, mm-hmm. okay, 92 years old. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's, it's a myth that aging is a deficit process. It is a myth. You really do get better in some respects as you grow older. You're wiser, you're seasoned, you're balanced, and you have a lot to contribute that a 20-something can't contribute to society. We need to value that, encourage it, and support it. I think it's important. Let's go to the phone. We have Holly from Indianapolis on the phone. Holly? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Absolutely. Um, 
I am an occupational therapist that works home health up on the south side of Indianapolis. So this is right up my alley. My question for you, um, and I joined your program a little bit late, but one of my biggest frustrations is I do tend to see um, more of the low-income population. And as an occupational therapist, I'm going into the home and evaluating the safety. And some of the easiest things to put in place to help people be more safe or independent would be a shower chair or grab bars. The thing that I run into is the only thing Medicare will pay for is a three-on-one commode that we can use as, um, you know, to kind of help out with the toilet situation, but doesn't necessarily fit in a tub. Um, and I have, with our social worker, um, multiple social workers, tried to explore what I can do to find resources. I've contacted Crossroads. I've contacted the Timmy Foundation. Um, and it seems like I go into homes and there'll be equipment that's not being used, Um but just looking for resources that I could I could put this equipment in people's hands so they could use it and be more safe because there's some ethical dilemmas there where I'm saying these are the things that someone needs to be safe, but yet I have no way to provide that for them, and they really don't have the out-of-pocket funds for them. So I would love any kind of information that, as a therapist, I could help with some of those things. Great question. All right. Nick, do you? Sure. I guess my initial suggestion would be, um, hopefully, if you haven't already, uh, you can you can be talking to the folks at Sokoa and their, particularly their case manager that would be working with that individual to see exactly what their uh, care plan is and uh, to see what options they may have available to them. Because I, I, would, I would tend to suspect that, that we would be able to fulfill those sorts of concerns and, and options that you're talking about if we're working closely with those case managers. And uh, if you could, could you tell me a little bit about that relationship? or have you had a chance to establish that? Um, not really. I mean, it's um, unfortunately, even though it's it's a team approach like any type of home care, because I've also worked within the first step system, um, it's not as coordinated as one might hope. So even though I'm going out there um, and my, my all of my information is kind of going back to the home base, I'm not getting any feedback from anyone else. So mm. um, I, I could definitely explore that avenue because sometimes I feel like I'm, kind of out there alone, but I could definitely explore that avenue. That, that would be great, and, and, and certainly you're always welcome to call uh, the, uh, the Division of Aging for assistance as well if you're having any concerns or challenges that, and trying to, to address the consumer needs that you have, so uh, please don't hesitate to give us a call as well. You want to give your number? I'd be glad to. My mm-hmm. direct line number is 317- Okay. 232 Okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking my call. And um, I, I totally agree with you guys. This is a kind of, um, and even though it's an underserved population, um, it's a population that has a lot to offer as well. So um, I think that, you know, these are kind of, you know, and, and, and as a younger person as well, um, you know, one day I'm going to be in that spot. So I would hope that there would be someone coming in saying, here's what I can do to help you, but how can we also, you know, help you to be engaged and involved in an active part of the community? So thank you so much for your guys' um, insight and information. Thank you, Holly. Holly, can I ask you a question real quick? Sure. Uh, when you say Medicaid will will only uh, do a three-in-one. Medicare. Medicare. Oh, you said Medicare. Okay, I thought you said Medicaid. Well, that explains some things. Well, I just want, knowing that, I want to follow up on Nick's comment and really encourage you to talk to the people at Sokoa, which is the Area Agency on Aging mm-hmm. in Indianapolis, but also serves Johnson County. Uh, it serves all the counties connected to Marion County. Okay. But uh, following up on that is a real, real important thing and again uh, do the persistence thing and you know and Nick gets good answering his phone (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks Holly thank you so much all right the phone numbers again 855-0811 in the Bloomington area if you're in Indianapolis or Greenwood like Holly you could call 877-285-9348 that's from any place outside of Bloomington or WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our web address if you want to join us online. I want to talk about this this issue of um, funding. I guess I'm going to turn to Nick because um, both John and Kerry talked about the need for you know more funding to be put into you know, home and, and community-based services. And you know, is that a is that view consistent with sort of state government and what you want to do? It's a great question and, and one that uh, I think we're constantly wrestling with. Let me take it, get a little bit behind the behind these questions and that is uh so the dollars that are available to us we have uh, certain aspects of the uh that we're going to have to expend that are mandatory for us 
if, if an individual moves in and is Medicaid eligible, moves into a nursing facility, we're, we're absolutely required to, to to take care of them at that point, and and it's, so it's a it's an entitlement. Whereas with the home community-based care services, those aren't entitlements. And so what, you, what you've probably seen not only Indiana but probably states throughout the, uh, the nation do is they know they have to fund that first. And so they back off on, on how much mm-hmm. they might be able to allot because they know if somebody walks into that nursing home door, they're going to have to pay for it. So that what, what we're, we're challenged to do is try to figure out how to uh, balance what we have, what we think might be left, because we're just making our best estimates on these things in terms of how many new folks are going to might be moving into a nursing facility. And what I'm happy to share with you is that, uh, you know, over the past few years, and actually even several years, the nursing homes, uh, in terms of the number of Medicaid clients that are going in, is, is stabilized and at times even been reduced over uh, over those past years. And so we, we see that as a very positive sign in terms of our ability to, to try to keep folks in, in home and community-based uh, care services. But we don't think that, we're, that we've gotten to the extent that we need to be and want to be. Uh, and so the challenge that you've seen over the past few years is, is no surprise that, uh, of the economic situation that the nation has been in. And, and what what I think you saw the the state doing is trying to respond to that the best they could, and I'm happy to, you probably heard the reports about the, uh, our own state government and the, the the reserve that we have of about a billion dollars, which frankly didn't happen by accident. It was uh, through a lot of dedication and work by leadership of the governor and, and folks being able to really buckle down and figure out how to best uh, use the dollars we have in the most productive ways. And so part of our response to that was uh, – and particularly as related to back to choice, what, what we what we did is we we decided, and um, pretty much the philosophy, not pretty much it is the philosophy of the division of aging that we're going to serve the neediest of the needy, and so both from a financial perspective and a a medical perspective, those who those are the ones that we said we we absolutely have to focus on them first, and to the extent that we can uh, use dollars for more preventative services and and things that 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 really are so critical to the choice program, those would come secondary, not because they weren't important but because we we felt that we were in a situation we just didn't have the dollars available to to capture everybody and so that that's that's the reason when you when you uh, look back at what the what the state has been offering this overall plan and, and saying well, well gosh Nick why aren't you why isn't the state going after this and increasing that uh, those dollars available it simply it simply was you know in our view that the dollars weren't available mm-hmm. now I thought nursing homes would put a can put a cap on how many beds that they will make available for Medicare patients well Medicaid, Medicaid now. Oh, it's Medicaid. That's right. Okay. And we only have a certain. Uh, there's only a specific number that we have licensed out there in the state. But the occupancy is is, uh, and I think you even heard uh, uh, Mr. McGowan talk about this at the Health uh, Finance Committee as well. Is that there's uh, you know, a lot of at this point a lot of excess capacity, and so uh, so to some extent there's you know there's a and I think what uh, Mr. McGowan was arguing is that there's probably some nursing facilities out there that uh, that from an overall state perspective would be better for us if we minimize those. Because those are, uh, if you got a lot of uh, Medicaid patients, that means, of course, that the costs are, are going to be state and federally paid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone number is again 855 811 877 285 I was interested in your use of the term civil rights in, in this area of uh, taking care of, of seniors. Could you expand on that a little bit? I'd be happy to. And actually, the civil rights issue is related to the funding issue. Uh, there have been a series of federal court decisions. Uh, the most uh, important one was one in, in the state of Georgia called the Olmstead case. And in the Olmstead case, the, the court essentially said, the U.S. Supreme Court essentially said, uh, you, can, uh, if you cannot deny people access to home and community-based care based strictly on the idea that you don't have money if you're already – if you're spending money elsewhere, and if it's already established, that's a service that's available through Medicaid in your state. Uh, and so funding alone is not a reason you can use to deny home and community-based care. But what the, the legal issue gets a little more complicated than that because uh, in, in, in the real world, you have to see a, a pattern where a state is seems to be following a, a purposeful uh, public policy to not invest in home and community-based care and therefore putting people in a situation where they only have the entitlement of nursing home care available and not the option of home and community-based care. 
there are a number of people in the legal community that uh, we have talked to across the country who say that Indiana is at risk of an Olmstead-type decision mm-hmm. or intervention by the U.S. Department of Justice because we have such an imbalanced investment in, in our long-term care system. That's an, uh, that imbalanced investment in which, depending on what set of numbers you use, it's 75% to 90% of our long-term care dollars, public long-term care dollars. Huh. And, and so the people outside of Indiana who are looking at that disparity are saying, whoa, you guys could uh, have the U.S. Department of Justice coming at you uh, at any time based on that. So, and again, as I said earlier in the show, this is a problem that people like Nick have to try to manage. It's not a problem that folks like Nick created. And, and so those of you who wrote down his phone number, don't yell at him for that. So, Nick, how can you manage that problem? That is a difficult challenge. And so what, what we've basically done, and, and part of what um, – and I, and I kind of pause at the moment because I, I – Concern that it, it, uh, at times this becomes a you know choice versus waivers sort of argument, and uh, the real issue for us, uh, particularly in this past session, was uh, was it relates to Medicaid waiver dollars. Uh, as, as you may not be aware, uh, that's both state and federal dollars that are, are taking place there, and so for every one dollar that the state pays, uh, in, in essence, another two dollars will be put in for the uh, from the federal government. So for every three dollars of services, we're putting in one. The federal government bring in two. And for choice, the, those, those programs, uh, that program is specifically all state funds. And so what, what the, the approach we were taking was, was basically saying, look, what, uh, again, if we try to follow the, the suit of uh, taking care of the neediest of the needy, the Medicaid waiver folks uh, in general are going to uh, be more financially needy and more medically needed as a, as a general uh, general rule, not always the case, but generally speaking, uh, that that we needed to focus on them first, and that the best financial way to accomplish that was was leveraging uh, the the one dollar of state to get two dollars of federal dollars to to put into the system to to service our folks, and so that's been uh, that's been the approach. Um, and, and while I understand we're not growing at the at the pace that we would like to, I would tell you uh, the over the past uh, five to seven years that you've seen a dramatic increase in, in, in terms of where we were. Go back to 2003, for instance, and how many folks were being served on the choice and waiver programs. And we've basically – there hasn't been any uh, real change in, and, in fact, no change in the choice dollars are being allotted. But we're still serving as many uh, choice folks while adding 6,000 to, uh, to the waiver population and, and in terms of numbers. So uh, as, as we talked about yesterday at the, the Choice Board, uh, is the idea that we think we, if we have the right mix, we can actually be increasing the total number of served. And that, that's what we're really focused on is, is the number of people we're able to take care of. And how many people is that? How many people are being served by these two programs together? So in, in last uh, last fiscal year, we had about 9,300 that were on the waiver program and, and the neighborhood of 11,000, I think, that we had in, uh, for the choice program. Is that right, John? Uh, that is correct. Uh, I would like to add, uh, to add something of a rejoinder here. And again, uh, to me, this isn't about choice versus waiver. But mm-hmm. on the choice program, uh, you've, the state is currently spending, an, on average, about $4,000 per person. With the Medicaid waiver... Per, per year? Per year. That's not much. That's not much. And with the Medicaid waiver, because under federal law, if you offer a Medicaid waiver, you also... Uh, anyone using a Medicaid waiver is also legally entitled to any state plan Medicaid service. And so that brings, if you take a person who is not on Medicaid and put them on a Medicaid waiver, that brings the total cost of t- the public cost through Medicaid to nearly 37000 A Slightly over a third of that or a right, right out of a third of that will be st- – consists of state dollars. So the state match is over 12000 Now, uh, we're not saying that's bad. Uh, in fact, our perspective is people who need choice should get choice, and people who need Medicaid uh, waiver services should get Medicaid waiver services. And the issue shouldn't be one in which the state agencies are f- are forced to try to divide the baby up, you, you, you know, as King Solomon wisely decided not to do years ago. 
And and in this case, the Solomon's decision would be feed the whole system. Don't divide up the baby, but put the money in the choice program we need and put the money in Medicaid waivers we need so we can pull down the use of nursing home care. Uh, one of the reasons some people in the nursing home industry are saying we could right now reduce the number of nursing homes in the state by 100 is because we have too many, and that very size causes us to spend tons of money just maintaining nursing homes that really aren't needed. And uh, there are people out there advocating, and I'm one of them, that if you have a legal entitlement for for nursing home care, you should have a legal entitlement for all long-term care. And that would end that disparity. It would also, in my view, uh, make uh, the Medicaid waiver probably cheaper because it would change the fiscal dynamics of how that program is used. Who knows? We might get to a point in the future, I doubt it, where the choice program wouldn't be as important. But one thing we definitely need to do is to change that public investment. And you can, again, Indiana could choose to have a legal entitlement, and, and, and we haven't done so because some of our budget makers in the General Assembly and in the state budget agency think that is a big risk. But because we have that disparity in the system, the risk is shifted back to Hoosiers. And there are many, many Hoosiers who do any and everything they can to stay out of a nursing home and to stay off of Medicaid because they see Medicaid as a negative. They think of it as welfare, and that's a real negative. So unfortunately, we have a situation in Indiana where there are simply people who are going without care. We have 6,000 people on the choice waiting list, 6,000 on the waiver waiting list, and we clearly have thousands and thousands of people who need some form of long-term care. Uh, they ref- Again, they absolutely refuse to th- entertain a nursing home. So those people are put at great risk. And, you know, many people think it would behoove the state of Indiana in terms of its image, its economic standing, and, and as a place in terms of quality of life measures to make these changes. Other states have actually made these changes because they think of it as good economic development. And I wish Indiana would do that. And let me add one last thing. Very quickly. We have 30 seconds. The city of Bloomington has long been very smart about investing in quality of life uh, activities and services. If we could get the rest of the state to take that attitude, I think we would probably solve issues like long-term care and home care in short order. All right. We are out of time, but I want to thank uh, John Cardwell for all those comments and Nick, Nick Patron and Carrie Conway, also Mary Catherine Carmichael, my great co-host, and Rachel Lyon, our terrific producer, as well as Mike, Mike Pashkash, our, our regular engineer, terrific regular engineer. Thank you. <laughs> if you've been listening to Noon Edition, thank you very much. Thank you. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.